Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for today's Therapeutics Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Daniel Gerald, and I am a clinical pharmacist in emergency medicine at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona. Today, I will be your host for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are two guests. The first is Lance Ray. Lance, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself? Thank you, Dan. My name is Lance Ray. I'm the clinical pharmacy specialist uh, emergency medicine at uh, Denver Health uh, here in Denver, Colorado. I'm also the PGY2 residency program director for our pharmacy residency program in emergency medicine. All right. Thanks, Lance. Um, And our other guest is Nico Kovacic. Nico, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself today? Thanks, Dan. As you said, my name is Nico Kovacic. I am the current PGY2 emergency medicine pharmacy resident at Denver Health Medical Center. Uh, I did my PGY1 training at Banner University of Arizona Medical Center Tucson last year. Happy to be on the podcast today. All right, great. We're happy you're here too. So today we're going to talk about status epilepticus management in the ED. This can be a very deep topic. We have some questions that we're going to go through with our speakers here today, but this certainly will not be all encompassing of what you might encounter in the emergency department. But we're going to go ahead and get started with the first question. And the first one that we need to cover is what is the current status epilepticus definition and how has that changed over the years? Lance, why don't you go ahead and tell the audience what you think? So the definition that was developed back in 1981 by the International League Against Epilepsy, ILEA, and continued on with in, in 1993 by the Epilepsy Foundation. Kind of th- these were kind of our first working definitions of, of seizure. Uh, and, and it's seizure lasting 30 minutes or two or more seizures without a return uh, to baseline consciousness between those. And, and of course, 30 minutes is a long time, right? So, so organizations uh, since then have decided that this definition in itself of 30 minutes could lead to permanent brain injury. So now we work under a, a, a much more, I think, reasonable and, and agreeable definition. Uh, this was developed in 2015 by the ILAE. Uh, an operational definition is status of, of status epilepticus is a seizure lasting more than five minutes or two or more seizures without a return to baseline. Okay, great. Nico, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that's that's all uh, exactly on point. I think the only thing I would add to that is that, you know, the reason that they, you know, became more stringent with that that definition, uh, as Lance was alluding to, is, you know, as the as time goes on and a patient stays in a an epileptic state, the treatments that we have become less effective. So a lot of the therapies we're going to talk about here in a little bit become less effective as that patient gets further and further into their status epilepticus episode. And so that's, you know, one of the reasons why that definition has has shortened to that five minutes or two two seizures without return to baseline. Great point, Nico. And and you know, I think we start dealing with what we call refractory seizures. That definition is a little less clear. We, we kind of throw around the term refractory in the, in the emergency and acute care setting. I don't think you'll find a, 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 a very good definition that everyone can agree on with refractory because the Epilepsy Foundation kind of defines this more on a chronic 
in, in long-term care, you know, is, is somebody stable and, and seizure free on their, on their outpatient medications. So, so I think we generally say, yes, uh, we, we understand that these seizures can be more refractory uh, the longer they go untreated. And, and so we'll kind of to, to, wrap up our definitions here. We, we, there's no official definition on refractory seizure, but we tend to think of it as, as uh, seizures that aren't responsive to our, uh, you know, probably second line therapies, just kind of throwing something out there. Yeah. I think the points both of you make are really important. The fact that seizures are difficult to control as they uh, progress longer and longer. We'll kind of touch on some of the uh, pearls and pitfalls that we'll talk about in a little bit. And then the refractory seizure definition. Yeah. There's lots of different ones out there. I've heard of ones describing refractory seizures as refractory to your first two treatments. So a benzo plus something else, but there definitely is a lot of gray there. And I think the focus here is making sure we understand the status epilepticus definition itself. And then these other gray definitions are probably less important in the ED. So moving on to some of the etiologies of seizures or status epilepticus, Lance, what kind of impact do these different etiologies have on patient outcome? Great question. So you know, as we know with anything in the, in the ED uh, or in the acute care setting, uh, understanding the etiology is hugely important. We do this with with ACLS, looking for our H's and T's. I, I think we should do the the same thing. Obviously, we don't call them H's and T's for for seizures, but but looking for those etiologies, trying to find the root cause, what's happening, what's causing the seizure, because it can can really have a, an effect on mortality. Of course, things like strokes, uh, hemorrhagic strokes, uh, can can be hugely devastating in, in, in terms of our, our brain damage and seizures on top of our brain bleeds, and, and these are associated with with you know 20, 30 percent mortality. Of course, an oxygen brain injury, we see we see seizures, uh, and and that kind of flips back to seizures can cause an oxygen brain injury, you know, and, and so it can be a vicious cycle. Trauma. And, and, and TBIs, of course, I would also, you know, add into this drugs and medications, right? This is in our wheelhouse. Patient histories are important, knowing whether a patient is on a anti-epileptic at home uh, or if they uh, are a significant uh, alcohol user also. You know, we want to take these things into effect. Why are they seizing? Are they, are they not satisfying drugs that they're used to being on? Yeah, I think, I think we need to be thinking about all these potential causes of seizure because this is a medical emergency. We're obviously focused on you know, treating the seizure in front of us, but we always need to be thinking in the back of our mind, why is this patient potentially seizing? And is there an obscure reason or an obscure therapy that might help me in this scenario? But yeah, as you said, one of the most common ones is you know they just don't have enough seizure medication on board, whether they chronically take it or it's a new diagnosis. Luckily, those patients tend to do really well, but some of these other ones that you mentioned, like anoxia, hypoxia, really high morbidity mortality rate, and kind of makes sense, right? There's not a great way to treat that once damage has been done. So now that we've kind of talked about what can cause seizures, Nico, what are the main goals of therapies and our priorities for managing a patient in status epilepticus? Yeah, so the initial management is, you know, really no different from anybody else who comes into the emergency department. You know, always start with your ABCs, airway, uh, breathing, circulation. Make sure we get a good primary survey, get vitals, and do an initial assessment. But really what's different with status epilepticus patients is the goal is to have rapid termination of the, uh, of the seizure episode itself. 
And as we were alluding to before with the status epilepticus definition, you know, as the seizure is allowed to progress, the harder it gets to treat. So that's why we really focus on making sure that they get their first-line therapies in, in adequate doses as soon as possible at ED presentation. And then just as we, as Lance and Dan were alluding to before, uh, if you are able to identify the underlying cause, uh, treat it, treat it uh, immediately because ultimately that's going to be the best treatment to prevent any future status epilepticus episodes. Yeah, and some of these underlying causes are easier to treat than others. For example, hypoglycemia, we can just give them sugar. You probably don't even need to check a sugar. Just go ahead and give them that treatment if you're suspicious of it. So yeah, definitely having that in the back of your mind. And a lot of these goals of therapy are going to lead into some of these management failures that we that we see typically at the bedside. So Lance, what are some of the common management failures regarding the treatment of status epilepticus that we tend to see? I think what we just hit on it, you know, really can't overemphasize the uh, time to treatment, right? Having benzos at the ready at bedside, uh, you know, delay to treatment is is one of the um, the common pitfalls, I think, and not recognizing it. Delay to treatment is probably one of the paramount uh, pitfalls that we commonly occur, and I, it can't be overemphasized time to treatment and in, in, in treating status early. Of course, in most resuscitation rooms, we'll have Pixis machines, of course, having benzodiazepines at the ready is uh, is hugely important. So I'd say that's probably the 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 the, the primary intervention that we can make, and and, and one of the biggest pitfalls. Uh, I think uh, drug selection is also important. Knowing well what access do we have, as we'll talk here in a little bit. Um, you know, having access is important. There's been large trials. That have it have kind of alluded. Well, what what access? Um, you know, what what drugs do we give, depending on what access we have and don't have. So, I think having a good grip on what drugs are available and what uh, routes those drugs can be given uh, is one of the pitfalls. Yeah, and I'd I'd add to that too. Talking about what you have readily available, a common learning point that I give to my residents and also my providers is they'll ask me, "What's the best treatment for status epilepticus?" And I can certainly give them what I think, but I try to uh, remind them, you know, it depends what you have readily available, right? There may be one therapy that's better, but if you don't have it readily available and you're trying to get it from pharmacy or in an area you don't have it emergently, that's not the best therapy. So I think logistics come into play here and are really important. Knowing what those barriers are. Um, Nico, are there any other management failures you tend to see with the treatment of status epilepticus? So the, the biggest one that comes to mind for me is really just making sure that when we when we are dosing our first-line agents, when we're dosing our benzodiazepines, making sure that patients get an adequate dose. And so one of the things I'll see is, uh, you know, we get a, a standard 80 kilogram patient who comes in in a, in a status epilepticus episode and one or two milligrams of Ativan gets ordered for that patient. And that's, you know, based on guideline recommendations and doses that have been published in previous trials, that's just not an adequate dose. And so just making sure that we are giving the right dose to the right patient. There's often a fear that gets brought up with providers having concerns of giving too big of a benzo dose and uh, potentially having to unnecessarily intubate a patient based on some fears of respiratory depression. But actually, there's pretty good evidence to say that in status epilepticus patients who are undertreated or don't receive 
as much benzos as they should, they actually are at increased risk of having a respiratory or having a cardiorespiratory compromise and needing mechanical ventilation support. So that's just one thing that I always try and remind my providers that I work with in the emergency department. I think that's a great point, Nico, and uh, emphasize that, that under-treating and letting status continue, uh, you can do more harm, and, and it's been shown in, in some large trials, good evidence that you can do more harm uh, than you would by, by treating with, with pretty hefty doses of benzos. That's a great point. Thanks for making that. Yeah, and just to make a comment myself, um, the uh, ESET trial, the Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial, they did a pre-publication of benzodosine prior to their actual intervention, which was second-line agents. And, you know, it's not individuals that are messing this up. It's not specific institutions. You see the same problem probably across the country where people have this fear of providing appropriate doses of benzos. And it doesn't appear that that fear is warranted. And then I think another fear that people have or something that they think is that if we have to intubate a patient in status epilepticus, that that's ultimately a failure or a mismanaged patient. And in reality, that just is not the case. Sometimes they are just going to need intubation, whether it's the disease process itself or appropriate treatment might kind of lead you down the intubation route. But again, that isn't necessarily inappropriate therapy or a mismanaged patient. So now that we know kind of some of these management failures, what is important in terms of treating these patients, Nico, what are the common first-line agents for status epilepticus? And what do we need to think about in terms of dosing administration and how might we actually pick which agents we're going to use? Yeah, so the only agents that have a class 1A level A evidence guideline-based recommendation are benzodiazepines. In the 2016 uh, guidelines, specifically call out IV lorazepam or IM midazolam. And then if it's available, they also include IV diazepam as well. Um, and as we were discussing before, you know, how do you choose which agent? Which, what it really comes down to is what do you have on hand, what's readily available, and what access do we have for the patient? So the original trial that really brought benzos to the forefront was the VA COOP trial, which was back in early 2000s, late uh, 1990s. And this was comparing four different therapies. And really all that they could say between those four was that lorazepam was better than phenytoin monotherapy for first line. And so that's where benzos kind of first got their big, their big guideline recommendation for status epilepticus. Fast forward to 2012, and IV lorazepam is compared against IM midazolam in the Rampart trial. And what they found in that trial was that there was no difference between the two in patients who were treated for status epilepticus pre-hospital. And really what that difference was attributed to was, you know, it takes time to get IV access in patients in the, in the out-of-hospital setting. And so being able to just give an, an intramuscular injection of midazolam and showing that it's actually just as efficacious as an IV lorazepam dose, that was, that was a huge, a huge advance, advancement in the field as well. So really, benzos are our first-line therapies, and we should always be going to those first and just making sure that we have an appropriate weight-based dose for our patients. Now, as far as IV diazepam, just real quickly, 
The one thing to keep in mind with IV diazepam, first off, it's tough to get right now, depending on what part of the country you're in, just because there's been, it's been on back order, it's been on shortage for so long. And even if you do have it, you just have to keep in mind that while it is very quick on, it's also very quick off. So if you do end up using IV diazepam, just make sure you have a really good follow-up plan. Thanks, Nico. Lance, do you have any additional comments or want to talk about any of the specific dosing of the benzos? Uh, no, I think Nico did a great job in, in summarizing that, especially the Rampart trial, which was a, is a really exciting pre-hospital trial to read. Uh, they, they came out in the, the early 2010s and, and uh, really emphasized, you know, it was a really practical approach. Uh, to uh, the patients, of course, were randomized to, to intravenous lorazepam versus intramuscular midazolam. And it really just highlighted the idea of just treating with whatever benzo you have, even if that ha- happens to be uh, intramuscular. Now, that being said, you know, we were having a discussion the other day, I think, where, where you know, uh, where, where you can give IV uh, midazolam and you can give intramuscular lorazepam. We all kind of cringe a little bit when, when uh, intramuscular lorazepam is ordered. So I, I, I would kind of say, you know, just to kind of summarize uh, what the guidelines mention is, is uh, intravenous um, lorazepam is, is a class 1A recommendation and, and intramuscular midazolam is also. Now, we were kind of getting in a debate the other day, Nico and I, and, and one of our other pharmacists about, well, can you give uh, midazolam intravenously? Well, yeah, of course you can. And you should if you have that. If you're holding that and, and you have that in your hand, you have an IV line, uh, go for it. And, and again, dosing is, is super important too. Adequate dosing, like we mentioned earlier with, with giving lorazepam four milligrams uh, up front rather than two milligrams and another two milligrams and another two milligrams. I mean, I, I can't emphasize this enough. And Nico and I looked at this uh, internally in our institution and found that we could do a much better job uh, helping providers give adequate upfront doses of four milligrams of lorazepam IV. And the same goes for uh, midazolam. We have to give 10 milligrams of midazolam. Now, now if, if a patient uh, weighs 40 kilograms or less, we can start talking about weight-based dosing. But we'll to simplify here, we'll talk about adults. But four milligrams of IV lorazepam all day long, okay? And, and, and repeat that with another four milligrams of lorazepam before thinking about moving on to your to your second-line agents. And, and again, 10 milligrams of IM midazolam. And we should not be giving doses uh, less than this to start off. You're just, you're just kind of asking for, uh, for suboptimal seizure cessation. Yeah, thanks for the additional comments, Lance. Definitely trying to keep the dosing simple for our adults is uh, really important. For those that are listening to this who might deal with kids, and even if you're in just an adult ED, you still might deal with pediatric patients coming into status epilepticus, there is weight-based dosing. So for Ativan, that'll be 0.1 milligrams per kilo. But if you look at the Rampart trial, they did actually try to simplify it for EMS. So if you have a kid between 13 and 40 kilos, you can just go ahead and give them two of Ativan or five of Versed. And then if they're 40 kilos or greater, you can go ahead and give them the four of Ativan or the 10 of Midazolam. So that'll help simplify the dosing for those of you that may not do pediatrics that often. So moving on to our next question, you know, for quite a few of these patients, our first-line treatments with benzodiazepines are not going to be successful. So then we need to think about what do we need to do after that? So Nico, what agents are commonly utilized um, after benzo failure? And what role do some of the uh, more obscure agents uh, play in the management of benzo refractory status epilepticus? 
Yeah, so I think you, you kind of hit it right on the head in the in the prompts, the, the question prompts. So, you know, looking at back at the VA COOP trial, you know, we even the best treatment, even IV lorazepam, only had about a 60 to 62% success rate. And then if you look at, uh, you know, the ESET trial, that's that was pretty well reflected as well, about a 60% treatment success rate in patients with, with benzodiazepines. So then you pretty quickly head into your second line agents. And traditionally, there's been a few that, you know, that we could certainly kind of talk, talk about all day. But with the release of the ESAT trial back in 2019, really the ones that have kind of jumped to the forefront and are probably going to have the best recommendations in the future are going to be uh, uh, levetiracetam or, you know, better known by Keppra valproic acid or phosphatidone and what that what the ESET trial showed was that uh, between those three agents there was really no difference in their primary outcome of seizure cessation and return to baseline within 60 minutes so really then it becomes okay uh, so they're equally as efficacious well then we can start talking about well what about side effects and what about cost and when you start talking about pregnancy categories and how quickly the medication can be administered and what side effects they have. Really, in all of those categories, Keppra just is the best uh, as far as, you know, likely the safest in pregnancy. Very few side effects, really just some mood disturbances that can potentially happen and little to no drug interactions, which, uh, you know, all those same things can't really be said about valproic acid or uh, phosphenetoin. So, you know, I can say at Denver Health, a lot of times it is, you know, as soon as that uh, benzo dose is administered, we're already getting our Kepra ready because we just we just expect that about half of our patients are go are absolutely going to need it. And then obviously, if there's any if there's any inkling that maybe the patient was on valproic acid or phosphenitone before they came in, uh, you know, potentially we could. Um, assume that this is a, an anti-epileptic drug withdrawal, and maybe we would would then jump to either valproic acid or phosphenetone. But by and large, it's it's Keppra. And you know, I think I'll let Lance speak to some of the other potential second line agents. Yeah, great, great mentioning of, of the Keppra and and the doses there too, Nico. You know, it's funny that Keppra has been guideline recommended at 60 migs per kg here for several years, but it seems like it wasn't until the ESET trial came out, they kind of reminded everybody that, uh, you know, the, the correct doses that we should be using with Keppra uh, with the 60 migs per kg. And, and so, you know, I, I think we're seeing a lot more appropriate use of Keppra uh, in, the last, in the last few years after ESET. And in terms of uh, getting other drugs to the bedside, uh, you know, we just get, it just gets so problematic with valproic acid and, and, and phenotoin or phosphenotoin, depending on what your institution uses and the, and the uh, classification of these drugs in terms of, you know, how they should be handled uh, uh, really limits them. I've started to see uh, uh, lacosamide brought into practice a little bit more. I don't think that there's any big reasons uh, from an evidence-based medicine standpoint on, on why this is, but I, I I really think that it's a bit of a lesser of several evils when it comes to ease of of administration and how quickly we can get this. I mean that that's even even considering that this drug is a is is considered a, a controlled substance. 
sometimes we're seeing lecosamide used. Now, I'm not, not going to say that it should be or, or jumped, jumped to, but, but um, uh, I think that we may see this uh, practice a little bit more in the future. Also, you know, it brings up the, the question of, well, when we're talking about our second and our third line agents, uh, where does phenobarbital uh, come into play? And, and as Dan mentioned, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of times we're, we're dealing with adults here, but phenobarbital is actually a second line agent based on, on good evidence in, uh, in the pediatric literature also. So uh, phenobarbital is something that we will jump to pretty quickly as a second line agent behind benzos when it comes to pediatrics. Dan, I don't know if you have anything. Would love to hear your opinion uh, on 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 any of these second line agents. Yeah, in terms of the last ones that you were talking about, I just don't see a lot of lecosamide used in practice. I do think the biggest barrier is one, we don't keep it in our automated dispensing cabinets, um, and then two, the controlled substance aspect just uh, adds another layer of difficulty. In terms of phenobarb, because we are seeing a lot more evidence with Keppra, valproic acid, phosphenitoin, especially with the ESET trial, I'm not really seeing phenobarb used for second line, third line, even in kids anymore. Now, could it be as you know beneficial or more beneficial than some of these other agents? Potentially, but we just don't have great head-to-head trials like we do with the, uh, with the ESET trial. Kind of a funny aside, uh, prior to the ESET trial, I was recommending a lot of 60 mg per kilo of Keppra for our status epilepticus patients and getting quite a bit of pushback, even from some um, neurology uh, providers. Um, and now with the ESET trial and kind of the guidelines supporting this, I'm seeing it a lot more and so much so that I'm actually having to push back a little bit when we're giving 60 mg per kilo in patients that aren't in status epilepticus. They're just sleeping comfortably after they had a seizure a while ago. So it's kind of interesting how the dosing pendulum has swinged up a little bit. That's a great um, and, point. And one one more topic I think that I, I hear my providers talk about, and there really isn't a lot of evidence here, but it's something to just think about in the back of your mind. If you look at the definition of status epilepticus, there's actually two phenotypes there. There's a patient that just continuously seizes and doesn't stop. And then you have the patient that seizes, stops seizing, doesn't return to baseline and seizes again. And they could do that a couple times. So there is this thought that maybe there's some agents that are better for seizure breaking, and then there's better agents that are used for seizure prevention. And so if you think about the different types of seizures or status epilepticus phenotypes in that way, that might actually drive your decision to use something like a Keppra versus something like a phenobarb or, or some other obscure agent that we just don't see used very often. So we're going to move into our last question for this podcast today. And Lance, what considerations come into play regarding with medication choices for RSI? This is a great question. And really, it's a huge question. We could probably spend a whole podcast on RSI medications and the approach to RSI in the setting of, of status. Briefly, I guess, talking about our most routine RSI agents, uh, I, I, I our gold standard. We will kind of separate this and talk about sedation first. Uh, Atomidate uh, has, there's a little bit of controversy surrounding Atomidate in seizures. Uh, You'll read some places will say that Atomidate lowers a seizure threshold. I'm not sure if this is true or if Atomidate, you know, we do see about a 20 or 30% reported rate of myoclonus with Atomidate. I'm wondering if this myoclonus gets confused with with seizure uh, and seizure activity uh, or seizure-like activity, and they all kind of get blended together to to where, you know, I don't know if there's a true mechanistic uh, reason for 
automate lowering seizure threshold. I think we can agree based on even the the, the vague ideas that we think how how automate works, and if it has something to do with GABA uh, agonism, then I don't think that we can buy too much into the automate lowering seizure threshold. But you will read that out there. I think all in all, it's considered safe by most, and, and it is a common sedation agent induction agent we see for for RSI. Uh, secondly, uh, we'll we'll talk about midazolam. And I think this is probably more commonly seen as an induction agent in the pediatric population, uh, primarily because we're comfortable with the weight-based dosing on midazolam in pediatrics. And when we feel like we get good sedation uh, with that agent at those dosing, I think you start to reach doses, you know, doses that are recommended for induction with midazolam in adults that that reach, you know, 20 and 30 milligrams of midazolam. And while that may be appropriate and safe, I think we'll see a lot of providers kind of balk at that and, and, and just kind of a general uncomfortability with giving that, that high of a dosis for, for midazolam. Although it may be appropriate, maybe you've already given 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams total, um, I, I think you just see some shying away from that. Thirdly, uh, you know, the, the other two induction agents that, that we kind of will think about and entertain the idea of our propofol uh, and also ketamine, ketamine having some, some evidence with uh, refractory seizures. Propofol, uh, to, to, to pick off first, I, I personally think, and I, and I know some people agree, that essentially the doses that you need to start with for propofol for induction, you know, induction starts at one to two mg per kg for RSI. I think the the doses that are required sometimes preclude the use of probofol, in particular from a vasoactive, from a hypotension standpoint. So I'd say uh, propofol is something I tend to not advocate for too strongly unless the patient's uh, somewhat hypertensive and they can, uh, and that patient can uh, handle some 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 uh, vasoactive, you know, hypotension from propofol. And, and finally, of course, like I said, ketamine uh, is something that I, I, I feel safe uh, using and advocating for. Uh, there's less evidence behind it, but we know that it uh, can be a useful uh, agent in our toolbox for refractory seizures. So I, I think most feel safe with it, uh, with its use as an induction agent. Uh, so that's kind of my rundown on, on the induction agents for, for um, sedation as we approach RSI. Just some different considerations. A lot of times our doses. Uh, that we use uh, have to be so big that it kind of precludes the use of these. Yeah, that's my take. I'll let I'll let Nico take a take a stab at the the, the paralytic approach. Yeah, thanks, Lance. And, and you know, like like you were saying, I mean, we could do a whole thirty minute podcast just on on this topic alone. You know, with the paralytic from the paralytic standpoint, the choices are always going to be between your depolarizing agent, which across the board is succinylcholine or your non-depolarizing agents, which is really going to vary by institution. At Denver Health, we mostly use rocuronium. So ideally, what we would do is only have a patient paralyzed as long as we need to get them safely intubated so we can provide them, provide their ventilatory uh, support. The agent that's going to have the shortest duration is going to be succinylcholine. However, that comes at the theoretical risk of 
maybe these, uh, if the patient has been having a prolonged status epilepticus episode or prolonged seizure, they could potentially be venturing into rhabdomyolysis, could possibly get increased in their potassium, which some providers worry could cause some cardiac dysrhythmias. And I'm not going to say that never happens. I, it may or may not be overblown a little bit, but it's really just going to be come down to the patient-specific scenario and really provider comfortability. The problem that you run into with rocuronium, while you get to avoid the hyperkalemia aspect, well, now you're taking away your neuro exam of your patient for about the next 60 to maybe even 90 minutes. And so if you're going to do rocuronium, I would just, you know, make sure that you have a really good post-intubation sedation plan. Maybe if you have rapid access to EEG at your institution, that's great too, because while you're not able to visualize a patient having a convulsive episode uh, in front of you on rocuronium, the EEG will allow you to see that. And the other uh, potential consideration is if your institution is comfortable with using uh, Sugamadex for the reversal agent for for rocuronium. So like, you know, like Lance said, we could talk about this all day. And I think it's, uh, I definitely have my opinion, but I think everybody just kind of needs to develop their own practice and really get a feel for what uh, their providers at their institution are most comfortable. Great points, Nico. And to summarize, I think being aware of our pros and cons with, with both of these agents, I don't think that there's a right choice or a wrong choice. Um, great, great summary there. Dan, do you have any opinions uh, or, or uh, other points that, that you feel like we missed uh, with RSI? No, I think, I think we've covered a lot of it here. Um, like the general points that I tend to make at the bedside are in terms of the induction sedation agents. You know, most of these are really good seizure breakers mechanistically, right? Midazolam, propofol, ketamine, atomidate. We have that controversy that you talked about. So we often have quite a few options. And because of that, we can really try to tailor the best approach to our specific patient in front of us. But certainly hemodynamics is probably the biggest player there, right? How you were discussing about propofol, you know, should we avoid it or should we go ahead and use it and just, uh, just you know, go ahead and say, we're going to put this person on pressors, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but that is like another step up in uh, overall therapy for the patient that we try to avoid if we can. But overall, it's just going to be what you have available and what your providers are typically comfortable with. I do not have access to Sugamidex or rapid EEGs in RED, so I'm trying to steer our providers more towards succinylcholine just because I know if we give rock, we're not going to be able to assess their convulsive episodes ourselves, and that just makes it more difficult for our patient. We really don't know how well our sedation is doing post-intubation. And I think that barrier, um, I just try to avoid by just trying to use succin as many patients as I can, knowing full well there are going to be some patients that succinylcholine is, um, is inappropriate in. And then just briefly, like post-intubation sedation, we have some really good choices here too. The typical ones will be propofol and midazolam. I think a lot of this is provider dependent, patient specific. I know at our institution, we're using more midazolam infusions in our pediatric patients. And that's partly just because of culture, but also, you know, the hemodynamics that Lance was talking about with propofol. You know, if you're going to try to use propofol infusions as an anti-epileptic, you start to push the dose pretty high. And so you run into issues with, you know, hemodynamics maybe needing pressor support. And then in kids, giving high doses of propofol, you know, if you do that for a prolonged period of time, we have some concerns for propofol-related infusion syndrome. So, 
even after you've done your RSI component, there are a lot of choices to make post-intubation as well that are certainly going to allow for some good discussion at the bedside. Definitely. And like you said, you can't talk about RSI without talking about post-intubation sedation. Uh, and, and it, you know, kind of a one last thing, it's always kind of begged the question for me. So well, do we consider propofol a, a second line anti-epileptic, right? I mean, it, we, we know how it works. We know that it, it abates seizures and can stop seizures. Uh, the question is, you know, are, are we, can we count that, you know, or do we have to get the pheno, uh, phenotoin or the valproic acid? And, and, and I don't think there's a great answer, but uh, Dan, you and I were talking the other day, I think, you know, in the low doses, 10, uh, 20 mics per kilo propofol per hour, uh, probably not. Uh, I think you've got to, you'll probably agree with me that you probably got to get up to, uh, you know, 50 to 80, 80 mics uh, per kilo to, to really, you know, count that as a, uh, as a second line anti-epileptic. Yeah. And I, I'd say, yeah, you know, counting that as an anti-epileptic or not, I mean, by the time you're moving on to your propofol infusions, you're pretty much at like your third line plus type agents. And once we get to that point, we've already determined this is a very difficult seizure to break. And we're kind of in no man's land in terms of the level of evidence that we have. So, so yeah, there, those are, those are going to be difficult patients once you're, once you're at that point. So that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Lance and Nico again for joining us today to discuss status epilepticus management in the ED and bringing along their expertise. Join us here at ASHP Official every Thursday, where we'll be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.